Amen. Please be seated. Great-grandparents. Praise God. What a great day it is. Uh, It's always a great day to be with you in the Lord's house. But to have uh, such a special thing happen. The church is just barely over 20 years old, so it's a great blessing to have four generations sitting in pews together. That's a dream. Something I've... uh, prayed that we would see, and the Lord has brought that, and from the looks of some of us, it's going to be bringing more of that. And that's a a great praise uh, to be here for that long, to see that happen. Um, I apologize, I can't hear hardly at all out of either ear. I couldn't couldn't hear the piano, I can't hear, I couldn't hear any lower tones, I can't hear at all right now. Um, Been to the doctor, I just have fluid in my ears, I'm not hurting, I just can't hear, which is convenient for some things I've found, uh, actually. But uh, I hope it doesn't sound torturous or more torturous than usual to you. Uh, I'm just going to talk and uh, preach. It's kind of like a, you know, when you sing, when you plug your ears to hear yourself, that's kind of what it feels like. So I can hear the the tone in my head a bit, but I can't really, uh, the diction of it might not be as good as it it should be. But I asked Matt back there to be ready. If I sound like I'm yelling, I'm not mad. I love you. I just can't tell what my volume is. Uh, but I wouldn't miss Palm Sunday. I would have asked Pastor Nathan, but it's, he sounded like he had tuberculosis in his office this week, so I figured, which one of us, right? You're going to get me. And I am going to open Matthew 21 with you, so please turn there. This is Palm Sunday. It is uh, this great beginning of the Passion Week of Jesus, the week that we remember him passionately taking redemption to the final stage passively giving himself up as sacrifice. And we begin this week of remembrance and recollection on Palm Sunday. We have a Good Friday service as well, and of course Easter Sunday is the big celebration, and it's the, it's the prototype of every Sunday, uh, is Resurrection Sunday. Uh, but this passage before us contains some of the richest, richest theology in all of Scripture, and it's uh, part of our tradition, the Reformed tradition, has has really given uh, the church at large a great service with its study and its focus on what we will see in this text today. Not just in this text. I could have picked any number of a dozen texts, and we would have found this rich truth that we will unpack here, God willing, uh, in our time together. I will read the passage uh, first. It's a familiar passage, and there is, let me just tell you, far more than meets the eye uh, when you see it. So here as I read God's holy word, and I'll read the account out of Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. 
And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? When the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. A simple event, right? Let's pray. Lord God, as we contemplate the day that our Lord Jesus entered Jerusalem at the beginning of his week of passion, very simply we are impressed again that Jesus meets our every need. We have so many things that challenge us as fallen sinners. Ignorance, guilt, and corruption, to name a few. But, O Lord, Jesus solves all of these eternally condemning problems. Refresh us with the truth of our Savior and illumine our minds by your Spirit to understand your word again this day. Encourage every heart with the story of Jesus' willingness to be our Savior and his absolute, complete, and total fulfillment of the role given to him by you, the Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently went back to my hometown to visit some friends and some family. I spent a couple days with a dear childhood friend of mine, one of the most intelligent people I know. In fact, that flight is where I first started having the ear problems. I had a sinus infection, and the flight pushed the fluid into my ears. And I remember even there I was having trouble uh, hearing everything he was saying. But we talked long hours. Uh, He works on a radio uh, station there in the city. He's a very well-known personality there now. Uh, And he interviews people as part of his profession. He readily declares that he is not a Christian, though he respects that I am and appreciates uh, what I believe, at least what he knows of what I believe. He does ask lots of questions, as you would imagine someone who does interviews might do. On the last night that I was at his house, he broke the silence with one of his cut-to-the-chase interview questions. He said, Tony, what do you think our problem is anyways? Things seem pretty good to me. In fact, things have never been better for me, he says. What do you think is so wrong? He kind of thought of me as being this kind of uh, downer because I think there's something wrong with humanity. What is our problem anyways? It's a good question for all of us to think about. What is it that we think our problem is? It's a simple question. It cuts to the chase. My friend knows that I think that Jesus is the answer to the problem, but what exactly is our problem? Over the years, many teachers of God's Word have studied to quantify both what the Scripture says and what is evident in observation among people, even personal experience. Most simply, we might say that our problem is threefold. It's probably more than this, but these capture the major categories if you think about it. Our problem is one of ignorance. Our problem is that of guilt. And our problem is also corruption. We're ignorant in that we are unable to know what we need to know about God in the world by any observation on our own. It's not that we can't know there is a God. My friend won't deny that there is a God. He could see that. But he can't know God, and he doesn't know how one might know God 
just on what he observes. And that's the problem. We're ignorant. Um, Apart from God revealing himself to us specially, we can't know him. People know there is a God, but they don't know him. And in this way, we're ignorant. And it's a major problem of ignorance. You can't get a, a more cutting problem than the ignorance we have in relationship to who God is. The second problem we have is that we are guilty. We are sinners who have offended God and stand condemned before him. Very few people, even people like my friend, would deny that they sin. He minimizes what sin is, but he'll admit that he's a sinner. For this, we are guilty of law-breaking before the lawmaker. That's what makes us guilty, and that's a problem, a major problem for all mankind. Finally, connected to these, we're corrupt. Because the sin, that initial sin, that sin nature that caused our estrangement from God, because it has entered, it has a lasting impact. It's like a snake bite. Um, The poison starts to course through your veins and corrupt every part of who we are. It's not that every bit of us is as corrupt as it could be, but corruption reaches to all parts of who we are as people. And this is a major problem. There is only one cure for our ignorance, for our guilt, and for our corruption, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Palm Sunday, it's more than meets the eye when you have this episode of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Every year I preach something about this episode. And I'm convinced I could preach something slightly different, and hopefully I have over the years, 15, maybe 17 years now in a row of this, something slightly different because there's so much there to unpack. Palm Sunday was more than met the eyes of the people who lined the streets that day. Palm Sunday was more than met the eyes of those closest to Jesus, different perspectives for sure. Palm Sunday was more than met the eyes of the people in power, watching what was happening as Jerusalem was just kind of like a powder keg in Rome at that time, going from 25,000 people to over a quarter million people in less than a week. Palm Sunday. Upon even a modern reading is more than meets the eyes. Palm Sunday is about God sending the fix for our pervasive problem of ignorance, guilt, and corruption. Now, to be clear, Scripture makes no mistake about our problem. The problem of ignorance is evidenced, as Paul says, to the Romans and to us by extension. Speaking about fallen man, man apart from the salvation of Christ, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Darkened, that's a good way to describe ignorance. We can't see, we can't know. Later, when he writes to the Ephesians, he says something similar about man who is disconnected from God. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The state of sin makes us ignorant. We cannot take in knowledge. We can't absorb truth. We're ignorant and we're lost without the knowledge we need. We also have the problem of guilt connected with this, to this, also in Romans, which is actually a quote from Psalm 14. No one is righteous. No, not one. So we're all guilty before God. Nobody 
no matter how good they are, how good they feel they are, no one's really good. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All in the Greek means all. Everyone. Genesis 6.5 kind of describes this guilt we have, and then it also speaks to the corruption that is our problem. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the ignorance leads into the problem of corruption. In Ephesians, Paul says, You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which, in with, in which you once walked. That's a description of a corrupt walk. The whole person walks according to their nature. And so the corruption of their nature plays out in their actions. In which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So corruption is a problem. Our heart, despite people saying, what does your heart tell you? Or follow your heart. Or he has a good heart. Scripture says through the prophet Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who could understand it? What does this have to do with the Palm Sunday story? The Palm Sunday story is far more than initially meets the eyes. In the classic Palm Sunday text that we are introduced to here this morning, we have one of the most glorious truths of Scripture start to emerge, introduce us to. We have a threefold problem, but there is a threefold cure exactly met in the person of Christ. It's fine for us to say, Jesus is my Savior. I want all of us to be able to say that very simply. But when we start to plumb the depths of what it means that Jesus is our Savior or our Redeemer, it will build your faith and grow your assurance. I would especially love for the young people here students, to grab hold of what Savior means on the level that you repeat when we say the catechism question during the profession of our faith. I'd really love for you to grasp what it means when you hear your friends say that Jesus is my Savior, or you hear people out in the world say, Jesus is my Savior. I want you to know what Scripture means about Savior, not to be smarter, but because I think it'll make you deeper, and it'll give you more strength to encourage and assure your friends who do indeed trust in Christ, but maybe only camp on what that word Savior means. Well, I'm saved from something. Way more than that is entailed in what Jesus does for us as our Redeemer. And that's what's so uh, well put through this story and through Scripture. The Bible saturated with this threefold answer. Jesus came to be our Savior, which he accomplished perfectly as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. We owe it to God's grace through the Reformers, especially, who really accent this threefold office of Jesus. And you see how practical it is. It's not just up-in-the-sky theology. It exactly meets our problems, and it's right there in Scripture for us. I love how Calvin puts it in his Institutes when he says, Therefore, in order that faith may find a firm basis for salvation in Christ, and thus rest in him, this principle must be laid down. The office enjoined upon Christ by the Father consists of three parts. For he was given to be prophet, priest, 
and king. It's for the firm basis of your salvation that we know this and grasp this. So as we picture Jesus coming into Jerusalem, we know what that means in its totality rather than the ignorance that was around and about as people weren't sure exactly why he had come. The great Dutch theologian Hermann Bavink said, Christ, both as the Son and as the image of God, for himself and also as our mediator and savior, had to bear all three offices. He had to be the prophet to know and to disclose the truth of God to us, a priest to devote himself to God and in our place to offer himself up to God, a king to govern and protect us according to God's will. That's why we ask that first question with, pretty, with regularity here. What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ as our Redeemer executes the office of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation, while he was on earth and while he paid for our sins, and his exaltation right now. He still occupies these offices on our behalf right now. This isn't what he did, it's what he's doing. First, he's our prophet. Notice the text as it opens with a fulfilled prophecy, a fulfilled prophecy by Jesus himself. A prophet is a teller of God's will. A prophet is a truth teller. It's not just a a predictor of the future. That was just a way to prove they were really a prophet. The main role of the prophet was to speak God's will, to speak his truth, to point people in the right direction. Verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Now, right now he's about to give a prophecy. He's giving a prophecy about what will happen immediately that fulfills a prophecy centuries old. I mean, this is the prophet of prophets here. Saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, if they would have got there and none of this was there, he's not a prophet. I mean, to be a prophet doesn't mean you're just a wise man. It means that every time you say something will come to pass, it must come to pass. If it doesn't once, you're not a prophet. That's the paradigm for prophecy in Israel. So this little detail is important. He says in verse 3, If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, the prophet Zechariah, in chapter 9. And in fact, Isaiah 62 has a prophecy almost identical, less detail. This, was, this took place to fulfill what the, was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus was giving a prophecy while fulfilling one. Jesus was not only a prophet, he was the prophet. The people rightly understood his character, even if it was through a fog, when we read in verse 10. Remember the last two verses? It's in our call to worship as well. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. These are Jewish people who know the paradigm for prophet. They know the testimony of Christ. Many were eyewitnesses. None of them said, you know, this is a false prophet, or this is a guy who they say is prophet. The people said, what's the stir? What's this about? It's the prophet. It's the prophet Jesus. 
from Galilee. Jesus, consistently and rightly called a prophet. A particular office given to a select group of individuals who were specially gifted by God's Spirit to reveal God's will. The ultimate picture of this is Moses, who models what a prophet must be in himself and any prophet that came after him. It was a protection, the person of Moses, for the people of God to know who a true prophet was. And laden in that protection, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now we know that this is Christ because later, when Jesus rises again and ascends into heaven, his apostles, who are like New Testament prophets, but now specially equipped with the message of fulfilled prophecy in Christ, they say to the listeners early in the book of Acts that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Fulfilling the picture that Moses gave is Christ himself, the prophet, the ultimate prophet. No one disputed Jesus' qualifications as a prophet. No one. Not then and not even today. There's no way to dispute it. A prophet tells the truth. A prophet proclaims God's will. A prophet is a teacher of the truth. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. What do we need more today, do you think, than someone who will tell us the truth, the real truth? In the text, we see Jesus fulfilling prophecy in his person and in his actions. In the way that people see him, it's clear he's a prophet. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He came to reveal the Father. He said just that in John 8. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, Jesus says, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Later in John 12, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Because Jesus is the promise prophet, we can trust him. You can trust him. We know what he says is true, and that which he has revealed to us about the Father is irrefutable. Louis Burkhoff, in his fine work on this topic, said that Christ continues his prophetical activity through the operation of the Holy Spirit. His teachings are both verbal and factual. And he's speaking especially in particular, of the word of God given to us now, the inscripturated word that we have now. He teaches not only by verbal communications, but also by the facts of revelation, such as the incarnation, his atoning death, the resurrection, and the ascension. So we desperately need truth. We are ignorant. That's our problem, right? Jesus is the truth, and he gives himself to us. Jesus is our perfect prophet, so and it's so needed in this day, of all days. It's needed every day, but we feel it very poignantly, the lack of truth. And he is the truth, and he gives us what we need to know. When the tide of popular opinion turns against us, we could rest on the sure, unchanging word of Christ because he's wholly trustworthy. He is the prophet to end all prophets. 
He reveals God's will to us through his word. Jesus sends his spirit to help us understand his word. Jesus makes us understand the gospel. That's how we are saved. This is why the question and answer is so well put. How does Jesus execute the office of a prophet? He does so in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Our ignorance is cured by Christ. Now, he does something else. He's our priest. Look at verse 6 down to verse 8. You remember that priests were representatives of the people. They are chosen by God to bring mediation between God and man. Now, the priests were identifiers with the people. They weren't better than the people. Uh, They had to bring sacrifices on their own behalf. The human priests did. They served as mediators between God and man, and they identified with mankind because of their infirmities. Jesus is the great high priest. He's delivered to God's justice himself. He doesn't bring the sacrifice like the fallen human priests who have to make sacrifices for themselves. Jesus brings himself as the sacrifice. He's the priest and he's the sacrifice at the same time. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. I think it's safe to say that the majority of the people who were celebrating were thinking of Christ as some kind of social or religious or political liberator. And so they were celebrating a bit of victory. The palm branches could mean such a thing as a king in victory. But the subtlety of the untouched foal, and Jesus, the perfect sacrifice sitting there so he would not be figuratively corrupted, was more a picture of what he was really there to do. Yes, he's the king. Yes, he will assume his kingdom but he had to make sacrifice for his citizens first. And he sits, even though the people don't know this, he's prepared as a sacrifice taken into Jerusalem. And he's not corrupted in any way by what he rides on, riding on an animal that nobody else had ever ridden on. No one else worthy to ride on it before he rides on it. A subtle but clear picture of his priestly role, his sacrificial role. Now, Jesus wasn't just a regular Levite priest. He was a priest in the order of one called Melchizedek. He was fully man, so he could identify with us, but he was from eternal lineage. Melchizedek, this mysterious person in the time of Abraham that was meant to be a picture of the eternal priesthood to be fulfilled by Abraham's messianic seed, Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, unpacks this for us. If there would be one book you should read maybe this year as your meditation book on your way to Easter, read the book of Hebrews together as a family. Go through the chapters, a chapter, uh, two chapters a day, and just see all the ways in which Christ fulfills what we have been studying, even in Isaiah, building up over centuries in the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. But Hebrews 4, for our purposes now, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a 
high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Remember our second problem? Guilt, corruption, condemnation, separation from God. And that's done away with through our mediator, our high priest. The priest has to be flawless. The priest could have no corruption. The priest, to end all priests, would not have to cleanse himself before he offered sacrifices for the people. The priest would not join in confession and personal cleansing because he doesn't need it. Jesus was priest in that he offered himself as the final sacrifice for our sins, bearing our guilt on himself and having it completely, completely met by the justice of God on the cross. He rode that donkey that had never been ridden to show his purity as the sacrifice entering Jerusalem. In Hebrews 9, he entered once for all to the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Later in the same glorious chapter, Hebrews 9, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The priest. The priest would not offer sacrifices that need repeating because he offers himself. Since the priest was perfectly holy, he was qualified to offer a once-for-all sacrifice. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, a young pastor who's feeding the flock at Ephesus, there's one God, Timothy, and there is one mediator between God and man, and you ain't him. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. Because Jesus is our high priest and has shed his blood once and for all, we have eternal forgiveness of sin, access to the throne of the living God. Our second major problem, the problem of guilt, is done away with. We are not left at a distance from God because the temple in the veil has been torn in two, and we have access to God directly. We don't have to go timidly to God's throne of grace because our great high priest has made the way clear for us. We don't have to feel the frown of God upon us because he's not frowning. Jesus satisfied God's justice completely. He has brought a perpetual, eternal peace between us and God due to his perfect sacrifice. And furthermore, even now, even now, Jesus makes continued intercession on our behalf while seated at the right hand of the Father. This is why it says in Hebrews 10, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, for us. How does God execute the office of a priest? He executes it. It is once offering up for himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Finally, look at verse 9 as it captures the, th- the third answer to our threefold problems by giving us a picture of the third office of our Savior Jesus as king. It says in verse 5 first, say to the daughter of Zion, behold your king, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. He's declared as king, and a king has rule, has authority over us. But a king also protects us. A king provides for us. A king might have to deliver us from enemies. A.A. Hodge wrote, The promised Messiah of the Old Testament was to be a king, and that the historical incarnate God of the New Testament actually is a king in the highest sense. We are witness to, by almost every page of the whole Bible, the fact of his kingship. Verse 9 in the text before us. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna, save now! Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Save us in the highest! Save us to the uttermost! Despite their flawed perception of what Jesus' kingship would look like, they were right to hail him as king. The kingly role of our Messiah was forecasted through David. When they say son of David, they mean King David. And they're referring to the promise that was made to David back in 2 Samuel, where Samuel said on the behalf of God to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your, with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. They were crying for the salvation that a king could bring. Not a sacrifice, although that's what he had to bring. They didn't even know what they needed. But they were right, he's a king. Remember when Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He did not refute it. And that's important. He wasn't going to get into debate with this pagan governor, but he wasn't going to lie about it either. And he said, you have said so. He knew what Pilate meant by king. What Jesus meant by king was far greater than what Pilate meant. In the book of Revelation, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the death, of the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth. Jesus was and is seated at the right hand of God, ruling from that place until he comes again. He rules in every way you can imagine, 
and he has a plan for how that rule will look and how it will play out. He reigns over a spiritual kingdom as he calls people to himself, as he subdues people, rebels like us, to himself through his gospel. He reigns in his church. He reigns over the world and the universe as King of kings and the Lord of lords and will, in a short time, bring that to consummation. His sway isn't limited to earth. It extends to the universe. It's not just over humans. It's over angelic beings. It's not over just angelic beings who are his servants, but also rules over Satan and his evil angels. Revelation 19. In describing the king of kings, and on his robe, and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have a problem of ignorance that's met in Christ. We have a problem of guilt that is met in Christ. And we have a problem with corruption that only a king could have authority to change. Only a king could transform us like he does. Because Jesus is king, he can subdue our rebel hearts and our wills. He starts his authority with subduing us to himself because we are not his friends to begin with. Then as king, he continues to reign by continuing to rule us by his word and by his spirit. He defends us against error and against sin. He gives us his church in which to be nurtured, to be protected, to serve in. He gives his church under his kingly authority so that his kingdom might be expanded by the preaching of the gospel. He can, we can rest in this reality that our king restrains our enemies. Our enemies can have no access to us that is not granted by the Father. If our enemies seem to have their way with us, it's only for an eventual display of God's sustaining grace, victory, and glory through us. Even our martyrdom could not snatch us from our king's hands. In fact, when the blood of King Jesus' martyrs is spilt, it sows more seeds for the expansion of his kingdom. How does Christ execute the office of the king? He does so by subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his enemies, and all of our enemies. I want to close by sharing with you a picture, a scriptural picture that maybe you haven't caught before, but it has become precious to me. When we read the Old Testament, we see that God promises the people of God that they would be something special. Yet you don't see anything special about the people of God in the Old Testament, do you? And if you're honest, you know you'd be no different if you were there. But yet through Moses, listen to what God says about his people, what his vision is for his people. He says through Moses in Exodus 19, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. Now that sounds great, but you all caught what I caught. I know you did. If we obey. Uh Uh-oh. No wonder things don't go well for Israel. Or do they? And you shall be to me, God says about his people. Listen to what he says closely, brothers and sisters. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. Wait a minute. A kingdom, priests, a holy nation, not a corrupt one. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, he tells Moses. 
Now here's the problem. Moses said to the Israelites, who were ignorant, guilty, and corrupt like us, if you obey my voice, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kingdom of priests, holy nation. Kings, priests, and proclaimers of God's glory. Does that sound familiar? But they failed. Except one. There is one Israelite who kept covenant. There is one Israelite who obeyed just as God said. And so God owes to that Israelite, the one who did it perfectly, exactly what he promised. And then, by extension, anyone who's united to that Israelite, the perfect Israelite, they too gain the promises of that one. Do you see how it now works? Peter, many years later speaking, after Jesus had ascended and sent his spirit and the church is growing and people are coming to Christ, now he speaks a word of fulfillment about our prophet, our priest, and our king that extends to us. He says in 1 Peter 2, You, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Present tense now. It used to be future tense, of course, in Moses' time, but now it's, it's fulfilled. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him, him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In this Palm Sunday reading from Matthew, there is far more than meets the eye. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for sending our prophet, our priest, and our king for his threefold office and what it means and how it answers the serious problem of our ignorance our guilt, and our corruption. Lord, at a corporate level, we are so grateful for how you have fulfilled through the one faithful Israel, Israelite, the Lord Jesus, our representative. You have fulfilled your covenant promises, and you are working them out before our eyes. Give us great assurance and comfort knowing these things are true. In Jesus' name, amen.